welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I've got great news for the followers of the sexaholic. Thank you. Thank you. That's the thing about fellowship is you can always count on some help. Uh, I've got great news for the spouses of the sexaholic. Um, the sexaholic calls me and says, uh, we got an abstinence contract and when the heck is that going to be over with? <laughs> and I say, it's simple, buddy. Because um, I'm sponsoring only men, but uh, I would hope the women sponsees say the same thing, to the, the women SA sponsees say the same thing to their uh, sexaholic. It's simple, buddy. You put your sex life in the other person's hands and you let them totally control frequency and the periods of absence. You surrender sex. Our program says that sex is optional. I have more celibacy time than any but one long-term priest in the program with 12 years. so that I know that sex is optional. I've got the kind of marriage now where my wife said, we bless the day that you were born. Our family blesses the fact that you are with us. You don't need to do anything in this family but just stay alive so you can add your strength to the wisdom of the family. That's a tremendous statement for somebody that defamed the family as much as I did with affairs and and uh, the worst thing I ever did uh, was that we're not the affairs but we're constantly lying beside my wife fantasizing after I broke off the affair for seven years in 76 to 83 fantasizing having sex with another woman as I was as a sleeping pill that's as bad as there is I saw a recent example of that, that men and women are somewhat different in what their needs are in a, in a relationship, that for a husband it's very hard to handle uh, physical infidelity. Uh, you know, a wife having sex with a, another guy. For a woman it's very hard to handle emotional infidelity, to handle an emotional relationship. She can handle the physical part easier. The guy can handle the physical part easier than the physical part in the sense of the infidelity. When I saw that, I understood uh, better, being a guy and, of course, putting the physical higher. I saw what a terrible trauma it was for my wife, more clearly even. But uh, it's hard for my wife. Uh, We've lost uh, sex in our marriage very early in my recovery. There were just a a few occasions of intercourse. through some combination, only God knows of, of 
the sexual addiction and the problems that it created, plus uh, my heart situation. I had a heart attack when I was 35 and had a couple of heart surgeries in 67 and 81, and uh, and uh, so some of it is, uh, you know, an organic situation. But it's been so, it's hard for her. Uh, she's a very lusty person, and lust in the good words. She's an, she's an Irish person, and I'm a, a Norwegian person. A Norwegian person doesn't know a feeling if they meet one in the street. <laughs> an Irish person is full of feelings. <laughs> and so it's very hard for her to uh, not have sex, and uh, sometimes. And But, in fact, she was just talking about that a couple of days ago, of how how amazed she is that we are as close as in our marriage as we are. And uh, we have an exceptional closeness. We just recently had uh, a son who, I told the guys about it, but uh, he, in one 24 hours, he had a, uh, he had an uh, inherited uh, disease, arterial edema, which makes his lungs swell up, and then he got asthma, and he was short of oxygen and uh, for a 24-hour period and went from the IQ of a college professor, which he was a prize-winning college professor, won the uh, uh, Telecommunications Award of the Year a couple of years ago, and, uh, to a dishwasher mentality in 24 hours. And we didn't know about it. It happened about a year ago. But because our family is united now, we were able to bring him home and borrow on our retirement and support him until he could get qualified for Social Security, and we couldn't figure out why he was going around all these doctors and nobody could give him a diagnosis in different cities. We said, get home here, we'll find a diagnosis for you. And I led that work, and uh, my wife and I led it together, and uh, we've got that diagnosis made. He's uh, qualified for Social Security now and is getting Social Security in the process of getting it from his college and helping him through the terrible legal and mental and, or legal and medical hurdles. Medical insurance is not for anybody except with people with a gifted IQ. No one else can receive their appropriate medical insurance benefits. I look at that stuff and I thought, this is the, I think of my, this, what an amazing, torturous maze that's created here. And um, we are one of the few families that can navigate through that thing. But anyway, uh, that's just an example of where the unity in our family has been so obvious and so necessary. We're living with some terrible unsolved problems. I've got a son who's a sociopath and he's a criminal, a white-collar criminal. He hasn't been convicted yet. But it's just a question of time. And we live with that. My wife is not able to talk to him anymore when he calls. So he doesn't call the house and my job is to call him. But uh, my oldest daughter has cerebral palsy. Um, but there's a ton of laughter and joy in our house. And more than I could ever have conceived of. More than I ever knew there was. So we've had an unbelievable feeling, healing in our, in our family. And it's uh, through the grace of God in this program and you people that that healing has come about. Some of the SNNs that know me from years at conferences have occasionally recently been sneaking up to me and given me kind of a, a little bit of a second or kind of a funny kind of compliment. They say, my gosh, Jess, you've changed so much. Well, <laughs> it kind of says where I was, and, and it's a little hard sometimes to face that truth of that, but that's where I was. And evidently they don't, some of them don't see me that way as much anymore. They, said you're so, they say you're so soft now. <laughs> 
but uh, there is a tremendous thing there. And one of the things that I see, and that's why the topic was called what it is, I'm coming to see more and more the tremendous dependency aspect of the addiction. When I was uh, 17 years old, I fell in love for the first time, and went. but then six months later went into the Army in 1944 into a college, uh, Air Force College training detachment and carried on a correspondence with a, this love of my high school life. And she was an unbelievable, tremendous, wonderful person. And she turned me on to a lot of uh, intellectual stuff that has influenced my life heavily. In fact, I went to the Army with uh, some books that she'd helped me uh, see. In fact, I, all of them she helped me see. Those uh, four books were uh, Freud's uh, interpret Freud's uh, the giant book uh, of uh, Freud's writings, including the interpretation of dreams. Uh, Emerson's essays, Khalil Gibran the Prophet, uh, Hugo Munsterberger's Eternal Life, which is a scientist talking to a religious man and saying, "Can religion and 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 science coexist, or will science dominate religion?" And then Love Against, over five of them, Love Against Hate by uh, Menninger. Those were the five books I had in my footlocker as a 17-year-old army guy. And uh, she's the one that uh, introduced me and got me thinking along those lines. I was ready for it, but she got me thinking along those lines. But after carrying on the correspondence with her for just a few months, she finally wrote to me and said, I can't have a relationship with you. It's like having a relationship with a dependent puppy dog. So she was the first one to really see the consequences of my addiction, my tremendous babyishness and immaturity. This addiction is like when you come out of surgery, you get a shooter at your bedside to take away the pain. You hit that button and you got a morphine, a little morphine, and it numbs you out. And you, you use that shooter and uh, you just kind of fuzz out. Okay, I had a shooter when I was five years old, which was the lust of connection. And I used that shooter ten times a day for 365 days of the year. Uh, in in ten years, that's a hundred thousand, or in thir you know, 30 years rather, that's a hundred thousand hits. That Why face a problem when I can shoot it away just instantly? So that's why me as a sexaholic is so sick when I come in. I've been 30 years in 12-step recovery, and it's taken that long because everything in my life has got to be, all the ideas in my life had to be thrown away, and new ideas taken their place, my understanding of God and life and everything else. And the biggest thing that I've had to deal with in the recent years is to see that dependent baby part of me. My addiction's got two parts so strongly. And I don't think this is, I don't see this as true of the alcoholic. I've been around alcoholism for years. Uh, I had an alcoholic sponsor, a sponsor 30 years ago. He didn't know what the drug was. And I don't see that dependent baby thing as much in, the, in any, anything like it in the alcoholic that I see in the sexaholic. So that we need an equivalent of an Essanon dealing with dependency part of our program, but we can't go into Essanon and get it because we're so susceptible to uh, the codependent that it triggers a whole bunch of stuff and makes it incapable of us to get it. In fact, the early days, Essanon was nearly destroyed, or was destroyed, really, in the Seattle conference by guys coming into Essanon pretending to be Essanons and hitting on the Essanon women. So 
so I've, I've, I'm talking to my sponsees and some other people about the necessity to learn about my dependency, which is essentially me deciding how other people should react and learning to practice the idea of what you think about me is none of my business. And as a husband, I must do what a husband does without any expectation of reward or how it... I must do the right thing. I must do what's best. I must do what's best for the family and what's best for me to do. And how my wife reacts to that is none of my business. And that is my struggle with the dependency aspect of this addiction. So that has been really occupying so much of my time and attention and I'm just beginning to understand it. And uh, in the beginning of our problem it says, um, who's got a big book? What's the first, uh, what's the first three sentences of the problem? Many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. Keep on. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. Next one. We tuned out with fantasy and masturbation. We tuned out with fantasy, masturbation. We plugged in by drinking in the picture, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasy. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. Where's the part about dependency relationships? Read that sentence. Uh, our habits made true intimacy impossible. We could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry, the connection that had demanded, because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real. Lust kills love. What's, what's the part? We bought it, we sold it, we traded it away. We were addicted to the intrigue, the teaser for a bit. Yeah, you're doing it. The only way we knew to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and make me whole, we cried with that term. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. This produced self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain, and we were driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. What's the Isn't it early in the sentence where it says we were addicted to the uh, intrigue? It says we became true addicts, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency, That's relationships, it. and more fantasy. We became true addicts, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency, relationships. Well, you said, well, you jerks, you were bombing away on us, and what do you mean dependency relationship? You didn't give two oots in a heck about us. But the answer was we were, we were caught up in our own dependency relationships also. And that's the part, you see. Now, another part that I'm seeing is a horrible, difficult part. And it's the last word, or in the last sentence, I think. No, it's the next to the last. We went for the chemistry, the connection that had the magic. And here's the word. Because it bypassed intimacy. Because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Okay, that's why we went for our drug, is we were so frightened of intimacy and true union that we couldn't bear it. And we went for the chemistry because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Okay, so what I learned in, and what the fellowship has taught me in the safe haven of the fellowship is by being with with just men, and I had uh, spent years, as I, in the early years of going to these conferences, there were women that I'd helped bring into SA. I had to avoid going to them, and I had to make myself go to the guys, because to me, when I came in, there were just a world of women. And uh, for those of us who were, who were heterosexually addicted, that was uh, the situation. 
Um, but And so I had to force myself to go to the guys and learn intimacy with guys, and I've learned to be intimate with guys and learn to love them, and they've loved me, and I've learned to receive their love. And as I have developed that intimacy, now I don't need the addiction because it bypasses intimacy. I'm not frightened of it anymore most of the time. <laughs> Once in a while somebody <laughs> hands me a little bit more intimacy than I can bear, and <laughs> I say too much already, you know. But uh, most of the time, I can handle now intimacy. And then I've only been—I've only been in the program 13 years, and you know—and I got the rest of my life to learn. I'm not on this kind of time schedule that I used to be on, or you know, if it doesn't—it hasn't—if it didn't happen yesterday, I'm not interested. If it can't happen, you know, in the next five minutes, you know, who's interested? So that's. Uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, a, a man asked me this question. He's a, 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 at the break. He's struggling to. Uh, his wife separated from him, and he's struggling to find what is the pace of a reconciliation, if there is to be one. And I, I told him the same thing. And so that covers the question that you had asked: is uh, let God be in charge of that, and let his wife, in this case, or the spouse of the sexaholic, set the tempo for that. And then if she asks or he asks that the temple be uh, set partly by you, then pick up that responsibility and set, take some of the responsibility. But don't be greedy. And don't decide what should happen or when it should happen. We must be surrendered. We will be surrendered in recovery. Huh? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, what I've done here with um, my talks earlier is rather than on a, being on a speaking format, what I did is um, uh, turned it into a, a sponsorship deal. So uh, let's try some questions and answers a bit and see if there are any questions that... Uh, let's put it this way. Let, let me open it up just to Essanons first and see if there are any questions that you would like to ask me. Are there? If not, no, no problem. We can, I can fly by wire and uh, we'll do that. Because it's uh, you're in a difficult situation, and I appreciate that. Uh, you're not in your safe haven, <laughs> and uh, so uh, okay, um, yeah. I guess I wonder, I don't exactly know how to phrase it, but is lust for your wife appropriate or not appropriate? No, uh, lust for my wife is not appropriate for this reason. Well, it depends, though, partly how you understand lust. Uh, sexual desire for my wife is very appropriate, but that's not lust. Lust is taking me out of the present. Okay, a perfect example is the tempo of intercourse where uh, a sexaholic is always at the end of intercourse. At the beginning, they're at the end. Okay, that's lust. You are, lust is where you're someplace other than the present, and it's where you've got something in mind as to what happens. Okay, when you understand lust in those terms, then lust is inappropriate 
in marriage because uh, whatever happens doesn't happen soon enough, right enough, anything enough. It's lust is a false image, and and we use lust in our language. I'm a writer, and so I'm very sensitive to the use of words. We use lust in our language really for uh, express sexual desire and hunger for sex, as well as we use it for the technical way it is used in Sexaholics Anonymous, which is a desire for something that's not appropriate. But you see, uh, lust is called one in the spiritual teaching. Lust is called one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, just to, but lust is a form of greed, a greed for what we, uh, a greed for more than what we're being offered at that moment. So that um, what sex with in marriage without lust is, it is two people together, and in the course of being together, they gradually, uh, reasonably, simultaneously see their desire to be together physically, in terms of. Uh, close, loving, intimate, early contact, and then that progresses to uh, more intense personal contact, and that progresses to more intense personal contact, and then that uh, finally terminates in the culmination of the of sex. Uh, the best way to explain that is uh, I once found, uh, as I'm a psychologist also, I once uh, saw a study where it said there are 247 steps between the time a guy first meets a gal or a gal first meets a guy and there's a sexual intercourse. And my first thought was, how in the heck can I squeeze that down to... <laughs> as quick as... Yeah, to one. Okay, that's lust. <laughs> now, I'll give you guys and gals who are sexaholics a, a graduation exercise. If you can... Dis- you can ask... Or you can have control uh, or, or participate in control of frequency of sex when you are so spiritually refined that you can enjoy each of those 247 steps to intercourse separately and appreciatively and not jump ahead. When you have gotten to that point, call me up and tell me. <laughs> I'll give you a little examination on the phone to see whether you can truly do it or not, because I can tell by the tone and various <laughs> hungers in you uh, whether you've passed the, or, or are absent of those hungers. And then I can say, boy, you are really spiritual, and yes, you, you have graduated, and you can do that. Uh, until that's happened, why uh, I will remain with my present technique, which is saying, hey, I think the spouse should be the one to control the sexual th- thing because you're powerless over it. Does that get at your question? Well, it was saying that, if, for example, if you decide you want some sexual abstinence in your marriage, say, okay, we're going to have sexual abstinence here. Uh, when you decide it's over, it's o- sexual abstinence period is over, it's over. Until you decide it's over, it ain't over. Uh, if you decide you want to have intercourse every w- once a week, once a month, once a day, five times a day, that's your decision. It's not your spouse's decision. You are totally in charge of that because the spouse is sexaholic and is powerless over things and you don't put bank robbers in charge of the, of the bank. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it's simple really when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you might run into a problem that if, like, say, my spouse wants me to initiate it though. Okay, well... Uh, 
she gives me the she just, to yeah, she just gives you a little high sign, and uh, it isn't really hard to pick up. <laughs> if you can't pick it up and you miss it, too bad, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I as a sexaholic know that uh, sex with my spouse at this point isn't any good. And I don't want to have sex. I want to have abstinence and she doesn't. Oh, well, I don't know. You just pray a lot. God solves all little problems like that. And and the answer is, is you have compassion, uh, you know, uh well, no, yeah, no, there, no, image. You, you, you know, you miss. I, I was sorry. I dropped the ball. There's no problem. You're just stupid. <laughs> the answer is, uh, when your wife wants you to have sex with her, then she'll let you know. And, and the answer is, you surrender. Because for our program, sex is optional. What we're looking for is a true union with God. And is it, what's, you don't have sex with God. So we're looking for true union, and we're moving towards that. And so sex is um, an accessory in a car, like you can drive a car without uh, power seats, right? Yeah. We, can get, we can have marriage without sex. Now, to a sexaholic, such a thing is inconceivable, but that's fine. There's a lot of things in this program that are inconceivable. <laughs> that's one of a thousand <laughs> Now, it is the main one. Everybody that talks to me practically, when can I get into relationship? I says, you can get into relationship when you surrender the desire for relationship. I know how long it takes to have a sexual relationship in SA that culminates in marriage. And we're, it's such an odd thing. We sexaholics are introducing to American culture the weirdest thing that American people have seen for a long time, which is courtship without sex. Uh, Catherine was invited to her boyfriend's parents' home and they were just horrified that she wasn't sleeping with him. They thought, there's, there's something wrong with that girl? There's something wrong with you? Uh, but I know how long it takes now because everybody's asking me, well, how long can I have a relation until I can have a relationship? It only takes two things. It takes two and a half years to ten years until you can have a marriage, a successful marriage relationship. But that two and a half years to ten years only starts when you give up the idea that you have to have it. So first you surrender having a relationship, and then within two and a half to ten years of not deciding, of deciding, got to give up whether I'm in a married or single. That's totally up to you. Once you make that surrender, then two and a half to ten years from now, from then, you will be able to be married in in uh, with sexual sobriety if marriage is for you. So it's very, and this program has gotten so simple as I've gotten older. So many questions I had got cleared, cleared up so well. I see the faces of some of you, I tell you. Some of you haven't yet seen its simplicity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a line in the in the white book that says, "Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others." Um, to me, that's been that's real trouble because uh, sometimes, you know, in the whole warped sexuality, you get into a position where um, you 
know, I know when I was acting out that a woman would have immense power over me because she would have the drug and I would want it. Yeah. And I see that in, uh, in marriages and it's dangerous. For me, um, you know, this whole thing, I'm having trouble in, in the workplace. It seems like guys just on throwing women as people that I'm working for. Yeah. And the amount of lust that can come out of that, even if there isn't any physical attraction, yeah. Do you have any any observations or experience, whatever? Oh yeah. Connection uh, between lust and power. I mean, the two almost seem to go. When lust goes one way, power goes the other. Yeah. Okay. And the answer is 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 there is only one power, and that's God, my higher power, who I choose to call God. And it's like the the program says we're powerless over this, and only God's help is the only answer. So I refer people to the way of the pilgrim, and in the way of the pilgrim, he uh, set out to see how many times he could pray, in that case, the Jesus prayer. And he said the Jesus prayer two, three, four thousand times, and he got up to maybe five, six, ten thousand times a day saying the Jesus prayer. And I tell my sponsors, there's nothing wrong with praying unceasingly. So the answer is, is, if you pray unceasingly, you'll have no problem with lust in the workplace. I don't care how it comes at you and what ways it comes on you. I have found two important principles, and that's in those New Jersey tapes on lust that I made in, in uh, November of 1994, uh, is any time I ask God for help not to entertain lust, God always gives me that help. Secondly, I like a videotape comes out of my head, all of a sudden somebody pops a videotape in my head and I'm seeing I'm lusting. I pray and I, I say maybe three Our Fathers and the prayer, the tape is still there. But eventually I come to the end of an Our Father and the tape isn't there anymore. So that's the second principle. I can always pray longer than my luster will last. It is really is that you're powerless. You're in a difficult situation. God will not allow you to be in a situation that you can't handle. So you either pray and pray and pray and you're successful or you get a different situation. I mean, you can go to work in a, among a bunch of guys. So I uh, say, well, gosh, I have to take a come down salary. Or, it's tough. I have told guys to move to Nashville for for heaven's sakes, so that they could have good programs. Now I'll tell them to move to Cleveland. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, we're willing to go to any lengths. This is not this is not uh, the boys' basketball team we're trying out for here. This is life or death for me. Okay, I'll open it up uh, as it has been to anybody. Yes. I am legally married, um, I mean, and I live under the same roof as my husband. But for me, um, my marriage seems to be my biggest trigger. I mean, that's the extent of our relationship. Um, it almost seems like, I mean, this is an excuse I know. Uh, I don't even know what my question is. Um, if I wasn't married, then I wouldn't be looking for a relationship, except that I'm in one that's a non-one. And, and I ended up, I end up, um, I mean, I'm learning to avoid other kinds of triggers that I recognize as triggers, but this triggers in my face all the time. Yeah, that's simple. There's no problem. This, what's your first name? Nancy. Nancy. It's just simple, Nancy. Just pray unceasingly. <laughs> go by, go and by the way of the pilgrim. Everybody's in a perfect relationship. Because, again, what I told uh, the group in the first conference is, I want, the first thing I wanted everybody to do is to take and write down the worst God they could imagine in all its description. A hateful, vengeful, angry, punishing, and then write out the best God that you can imagine. Take the first paper and throw it away and take that second God as your... Okay, so a God who means nothing but the very, very best for you 
is there. It's like a, a woman in New York one time that was also was an essay. She said, people come up to me and ask, where, do, you know, where should I be in life? What should I be doing? She said, look where your feet are and then get your head there. <laughs> okay, each one of us are in exactly the right relationship. God in his infinite kindness has constructed this. Now, uh, some Vince used to have a trouble in my old day. sponsor had trouble with love. Um, and he experienced a lot more of it than he realized. But he said, we, he said people set up a torture chamber and call it love. And many of us did that in our addiction. Okay, now we're offered the precious opportunity to turn a torture chamber into the paradise through God's grace and the transforming power, the same transforming power that transforms the butterfly or the, the caterpillar into a butterfly. Now, that is not work for psychology. I'm a psychologist who sponsors a psychiatrist. If there were the answers to this kind of problem, we would have found them in our lodge. Now, all kinds of people I meet on the street are just gifted psychologists beyond all measure, and they tell me about psychological goodies of infinite power and majesty. I want to tell them, hey, what kind of dope are you smoking, buddy? Uh, and I know what the lives of psychologists look like. The worst department that a person could be in in a university is in a psychology department, because those people are so terrible to each other. Uh, we are not nice people. Okay. So I'm not interested in that power. I'm interested in this power that we have in this group that is capable of transforming us in our situations. And like Vince used to put it, our duties then become our pleasures. It used to be that my duty was, one of them was to, each night after supper, my job was to clear away the dishes, put them in the dishwasher, get the dishwasher going, and clean up the whole kitchen so it just shined and looked spotless and beautiful. Okay, that started out being a duty. and It's become a pleasure to me. Kind of bugs me now when Jackie will kind of interfere there and kind of interrupt my normal routine. I just, I just love that. Now sometimes uh, I'd like to, I like to finish my Celtic basketball game, which is over about 7:30 before I go out in the kitchen and do that. And it bugs her that that is not done. So I'm slowly, the duty I have is to do it before the Celtics basketball game is over right away, so it doesn't have to bug her. And that's not a pleasure yet, but I'm. <laughs> on game nights I'm working to turn that into a pleasure by doing my duty so but that again is where the codependence thing I'm doing my duty like I, I'll be whining about why don't I get this award or recognition or appreciation for what I'm doing and then I have to ask myself but why are you doing this well I'm doing it because it's a good thing to do okay if it's a good thing to do why don't you act like it instead of sitting around whining like a little baby so that's kind of how I talk to myself it isn't just how I talk to sponsees. It's how I talk to me. I talk to me like that because that's the way my sponsor talked to me. He said, it's okay to be human. I said, Vince, I'm only human. He says, it's okay to be human, but why do you have to act so much like a monkey? So, uh, let, me, uh, let me ask a question. Let's see. Where's... I've got two choices. Uh, I can leave this kind of... Uh, and it looks, it look, well, I could leave the questions pretty much in essays, uh, and then let's see if an SNN question is evoked. I can go that way, or I can speak on some issues. Uh, if there's any danger here that we might get too essay uh, and be uh, not properly helpful, because there's some things I can talk about just speaking. So uh, I'm going to put the ball in your hands, and you tell me what to do. You're, you're guided by you're guided by the same God I'm guided by. 
Yes. <laughs> Okay. See what I've got to say. Okay. Okay. And then you just raise your hand and interrupt me. Okay. Okay. Uh, I spent 15 years in Al-Anon. I sat in those Al-Anon meetings next door to alcoholics. And they were laughing their guts out. And I was thinking, those jerks did it to us. They made our lives so miserable. What in the hell are they doing laughing and us sitting here sad? <laughs> and uh, so I've had the advantage of being on that side of the fence. In fact, when I came into SA, uh, I was in Emotions Anonymous for 17 years and then and my wife then joined Al-Anon, or rather joined AA finally. She dropped out of EA and joined AA in 78. And so then she spent, uh, 78 to 83, she spent uh, five years in AA. And that's what got her to the point where she could, say, get an SA or get out. She got well enough, and I was in white-knuckle sobriety. I'd given up my affair, uh, but uh, we're doing the fantasy, which is worse. Uh, but when I came in, I said to her, because I was sick of being an Al-Anon. And I'd walked both sides of the street by then. So I said, ha ha, now I'm the ick and you're the Anon. Now you deal with it. Because <laughs> she'd spent five years being the ick and I was the Anon. And I didn't like it. I didn't like sitting there saying, why are those guys laughing and enjoying themselves who tormented me to death? And... Um, so that, but I have had the experience, like I say, some of, of being on the other side of the street. And uh, my heart goes out deeply to Essanons because it, in my experience with Al-Anon, I haven't had that much experience, you know, with Essanon. It hasn't been, you know, practiced well that long. I've seen some Essanon women, well, I've seen Essanon, women are primary, you know, the Essanons that we hear from most at the conferences, but well, there's a guy, Essanon, that I, I know real well, Gene uh, and uh, uh, some of the women Essanons, I've seen some tremendously beautiful recovery stories from them. I've seen, I've heard better recovery stories from, from Essanons than I had heard from Alanons. I've got not just Al-Anon stories that I've run into in my meetings, but I've got a collection of national Al-Anon tapes like Blanche Devonport and a bunch of others. I've got maybe oh, 30 or 40 uh, Al-Anon tapes. Um, but it's, uh, it's startling to me, especially in Al-Anon, how difficult it is to find uh, real recovery there. And what I see is the secret there is is that it's easier when I'm a, when it's, I'm a secondary addict, it's easier for me to escape responsibility for my part of the situation. And I really like the, the way your literature handles that. And, but it is such a temptation to focus on that other out there instead of who the real... Their only problem in this world is always me, whether I'm an Al-Anon... Um, a nutcase like Emotions Anonymous, Neurotics Anonymous, um, or a deeper nutcase like a sexaholic. 
there's a line from the English or the Swedish poet, or that's the Indian poet Tagore, who says, "Who was it, prisoner, who forged those chains of yours so carefully?" It was I," said the prisoner, "who forged these chains of mine so carefully." Another thing was sent to me by uh, uh, one of the early people who had read my books. And uh, it was a little four-line poem from Mark Kuhn in, um, in Illinois. I put it up by my desk, and I've had it by my desk for 25, nearly 25 years, right over the top of my desk. Who was it? Let's see. Know how to go. The world is not the enemy that has set me out to die. The world has not for... Or rather, the world has not forsaken me and set me out to die. The world is not my enemy, but rather that stranger I. And my guess is, and I I would never presume to be certain about this because this is somebody else's program, but my guess is that you could possibly identify with that that statement in our problem. We went for the connection that had the magic because it bypassed intimacy and true union. I think it might be no accident that you were married to, to sexaholics. Because what I see in life is that everybody, not just sexaholics, perhaps not just Essanons, but everybody I see in life is frightened of intimacy and true union. I hear uh, to me the biggest misconception I see uh, current in our country today is people say, well, I want intimacy, and the answer is they're big liars. They don't want intimacy. They're frightened of it. And I know I've occasionally done some very cruel experiments in that case where people have said that, and I'll proceed to give them a a real healthy dose of intimacy, uh, which ain't true intimacy, because uh, I'll just take and, and strip right down to my jockey shorts right there in the spot emotionally and they don't like it and they want to get as far away as they can and they should because it's a crude thing to do and I've quit doing bad things like that but it used to really bother me when somebody was telling me how much they wanted intimacy and 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 to me all of us need to learn the danger of that statement that because what the ego is is the ego is that part of ourself that makes us separate and alone. The Cheyennes say it the best, the Cheyenne Indians. They say the one way in which all of us are created equal is we are all born separate and alone. Our life then is spent on a spiritual quest out of separation and loneliness towards God. Okay, that sounds beautiful and we're all ready to buy that because we all know Native Americans have got the uh, total lock in all spirituality. <laughs> Except for certain few abandoned cars around their places and the things like that. <laughs> Next to a reservation, I got good friends in the Crow Reservation, and my Crow name is White Man Who Has No Hair. <laughs> As a kid was born in the reservation to one of my friends down there, and he, a kid came out without any hair, so they named him Jesse. <laughs> so his name is Jess Realberg. So I got this crow Indian running around with my name on, about 20 years old, and um, and, and I've had you know close friends. Of the, uh, the real bird family would call and say, "We're coming to Montana for, or coming to Bozeman for the powwow. We'll stay at your house." Said, so "You know," and that's the way they do things. But that 
Indians have had the same kind of problem with that that we've had. Uh, in the Indian, in the Crow Indian uh, mythology, uh, we, we were taking uh, Henry Railbird was a student of mine. We took him to his motel or his uh, motor mobile home one night, and it was locked. And he couldn't get in the win- or the door, so he went around and crawled in a window. And he got his books, came out the door, put his books in our car, and then went back in, shut the door. And the next thing we do, we see him crawling out the window. I said, what in the world is that about, Henry? Well, he said, it's a spiritual teaching that there are a lot of ghosts who roam, and spirits who roam, roam the world, and that you must always go out a teepee or a habitation by the same hole that you went in, or it leaves a, that seals up the hole. If you go out a different hole, it leaves a hole that the ghosts can get into your house with. Okay, Henry, who are the ghosts? The ghosts are the spirits of crows who killed a member of their clan or committed suicide. Well, that's not beauty. beautiful. That's just like home. That's just like you and me. Okay, why does Native American spirituality have this ultimate taboo for murder of somebody so close to us because they had problems just like we did. They had the ideal just like we do. We believe in each of us are making a a movement towards God in our lifetime. But some of us uh, have various kind of little detours on the path. This is those of us with this addiction have. And so the point is nobody likes intimacy because if we come into intimacy, when we come into close communion with God's with God, one of God's other children, who do we see? We see God and we see ourselves reflected in, in the mirror of God. So we don't want true union. Now, I, will, I won't tar Essanons with that. I'll take only take that medicine for me, but I offer it to you as an idea to think about and if, if it has any merit. Yes? Okay, beautiful. And the answer is, the secret, the beginnings of intimacy, guess what's up in the head of those first 247 steps? And uh, covers of Cosmopolitan magazine would mislead you if you decide which is some of the early steps. Huh? Yeah, talking. Uh, you know, thanks for emptying the garbage. Or, hey, you idiot, empty the garbage. <laughs> That's beautiful intimacy in that. Now, to us fools who think of intimacy only as we think sex and intimacy are the same thing. I've got a, I've got a thing on there. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, yeah, I've got a couple of things. Uh, the three biggest lies we tell ourselves. I'm too tired and need rest. I'm too hungry and need food. I'll die if I don't get sex or sexual stimulation. And all of that comes because the energy in us, we start up in the morning with all the energy in the world, it leaks out through holes of anger, jealousy, envy, resentment, bitterness, and all those other things. So we're, we're just like a sieve. God pours in a full day's energy at the beginning of the morning, and by noon we're dead tired. I used to come home at night fall asleep in my easy chair and you couldn't get me out of there with a derrick. A lot of times I'd go to sleep there and not get up until the middle of the night and go and get dressed. Okay, that's what happens to energy when you're careless, when I was careless of it. Okay, what they tell in one of the spiritual programs, they say how we evaluate 
the state of our emotional well-being and mental and spiritual well-being is we see that we have finally at the end of the day all of the energy we started out with in the morning. So we go to bed then physically tired only, but with the high, same high energy we started out with in the morning. And I'm finding many of my days now I can, I can do that. Most of my days when I'm sitting down there in my easy chair reading, I'll get up and do something and it's, I'm just as light as a, as a feather at uh, 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night. And, you know, I'm a guy who, like my heart is beats well, but weak enough that at night I need to be on an oxygen. So I've got an oxygen concentrator sitting by my bed. But I'll have good energy all day long. My wife heard I was going to be, uh, she said, how much are you talking, Jess? I said, I'm all day. Oh my gosh. She said, well, just be sure you let them talk a lot. And she's worried that I can't do this. Well, I'm just a little ways away from, from being able to do this. And so this is, uh, I'll be 70 in October and had two heart surgeries and uh, brain damage from one of them and had cancer surgery and uh, you know, I had some other mishaps, I guess, along the way. Um, but it's, it's no problem because those things are physical and they are of no consequence. What is the real consequence is the attitude. So I'll, I'll see all these people jogging and they got lousy attitudes. <laughs> They're going to be dead before sunset. And they don't know what's killing them. <laughs> you know, so it's weird. Okay, here's one thing that applies very much to this. And I'd like each of the Essendons here to take this test as well as the essays. Nelson Mandela said it uh, in his 1994 inaugural address. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. Who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine... We consciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Another man said, make a career of humanity and you'll make a finer person of yourself. And this is the selfless service that is so critical. And again, it is uh, much less common to see Alanons, and I speak from Alan. I can speak from the Alanon perspective without being so offensive as if I were to speak from an Essanon perspective. It is much less common to see Alanons uh, spending, making a career of selfless service. Very few. I only uh, know of of a, a few Alanons who've gone to treatment for it. The mind says love is sex. 
the heart says love is love. The body says there's no such thing as love. The soul says there is nothing but love. And again, I see in my experience with SNNs and SAs a lot of confusion, both in the SNNs, as the SAs are really confused about sex is love. But I see a lot of SNNs who, when that sex isn't there, feel unloved. But that is nothing special about the particular two categories. It is true of the whole, of all of humanity, because we are all creatures of the ego, working our way out of the ego, being transformed from the caterpillar of the ego to the butterfly of the spirit and love and God. Well, I need a little guidance right now. Unfortunately, God's got it out for me right there. We've got a few more minutes left. Yes? Okay, how do you regain trust in your spouse after the person that you thought you knew turns out and had betrayed you? And there's two elements to that question. Uh, the easiest answer is the part of uh, you regain that trust very slowly. And I've got good news for you. Uh, after 13 years, the trust comes back. <laughs> My wife does not worry that I'm someplace else than where I should be. <laughs> My number is up on the calendar with this motel on and I'll be here all of the time that I'm here and if she needs me or somebody needs me, she had a stroke when I was in the Phoenix Convention and it really hurt her. Uh, she begged the kids not to contact me but they did anyway and uh, they called me at the motel and I was there. Okay, when you, I've been there where I'm supposed to be for 13 years now. And so I know the answer to the question. It's very simple. Now, the second part of the answer is a little, uh, a little hurtful. And that is, in most marriages, until death, there is no true intimacy. There was the appearance of intimacy, but there was no true intimacy. You see what I'm saying? Now, that's tough to face. Uh, Louis L'Amour is uh, a novelist that I enjoy reading his novels and I'm reading through I've got a, the whole collection I'm, I, I read them at night to, to go to sleep by because um, a couple of things number one is it quiets my mind down and I, my mind's too busy a street sometimes and it needs quieting down at night I don't want to be reading the newspaper at night and uh, but also for another thing is he teaches me about being heroic and uh, there's a famous woman psychiatrist uh, she's a Spanish woman she was originally an English woman and then married a Spani Spanish man and she said she would never and she's a Jungian she said she would never would have known what it meant to be a woman had she not lived and uh, moved to a matriarchy like Spain and her book is called Knowing Woman and she was going to talk about what guys were, but she talks about what women are. And she said that, as I told you earlier, that women are the possessors of, 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 their, of the unconscious. Guys are not, and the woman's job, ideally, she feels, is to mediate 
to be a mediator between uh, her husband and, and hand him that unconscious. And this is what my wife has done for me. Without her, I would be a tech writer, a gifted tech writer. Okay, she has taught me the, the most precious things that I know. I went, to war, I went to the army with those books that I mentioned to you, but it was her teaching me the unconscious that fleshed those books out and made them understandable and, and feelable to me. So in the course of that work, uh, she feels that a woman can run away from this by being sexual. She can run away from it by being a friend to her children. She can run away from it by being a companion to her husband. But mediating between uh, a guy with no sense of the unconscious as I am and a, and, all, and a sense of everything that ever was as she is, that is difficult, difficult work. And it is very easy, as I understand it from that perspective, for a woman to hesitate to do such a tough job and take an easier way out by companionship or being a good friend or to her husband or to her children, being a buddy-buddy mother. Um, and and uh, the, the author of this book, she's a, got a Spanish name. I don't have it handy. Uh, Irene somebody or other, de Castelloni, but it's two names, her name and then the Spanish name. But then she just got started writing on the man's part of the thing and then died. And, um, but she did say a few things about what, uh, what a man is. And, and ideally, a man needs to be heroic. And uh, I'm sorry, gals, but uh, you got something less than a hero when you got us. <laughs> but now, we are in the process of going on that heroic mission. Uh, and, and it's like when... Um, I think Stevenson, the, uh, about 1900, the pole, one of the Arctic explorers, put an ad in the London Times. And in those days, the London Times uh, classified the personals were on the front page of the London Times. And it said, wanted uh, 20 men for a dangerous mission. Chances of return are marginal. And 10,000 men replied to the ad. And that's that heroic part of men, wanting to do heroic things and wanting to be the protectors of a home and then women wanting to make a home and build a home. And, oh, another one of the deviations that a woman can choose is the Amazon tradition where I can do anything a guy can do and do it better. And there are quite a few gals doing that today. And they'll pay the price for that, uh, I suspect. Um, if there is a difference between men and women, as I suspect there is, uh, and if it goes along the lines that this woman uh, union says there is, but what the Louis L'Amour novels do is it teaches me what heroism is. And you can say, how can that be somebody killing somebody else is heroism? And the answer is, if you read Louis L'Amour carefully, um, no one is shot if there's some other way to do it. Uh, and, in fact, often somebody isn't shot and killed when it would it seems stupid not to shoot and kill them. <clears throat> because you're setting yourself up for a bunch of trouble and you say, well, that's just the novel. It needs to be long, but no. There's something important in that, and that is a heroic person does not take life carelessly. Okay, so one of the things I'm learning is what it means to be heroic. You know, I had read these books for a while before I understood some of this, and, and I'm, I'm seeing it better now. But one of the questions that Lemoore, and this is what I'm leading up to, 
the questions Lamore frequently got is women would write him and say, where can I go and meet some of those heroes that you're writing about? But what they didn't ask is, how can I develop myself as a human being so that I can be a fit partner for a hero so I can be the kind of human being that attracts a heroic person? Okay, it's all I can bite off in life with all of God's help and then some for me to ever aspire to be anywhere close to heroic. And if I were a woman, my guess would be I would feel the same thing, that it is all I could aspire to or bite off is to even hope to be uh, a spouse of a heroic person. So that what we are here is in a program of intense spiritual development. But fortunately, we have all the time in the world. We have our whole life stretching out in front of us. So there is no hurry. Our greed makes us want more than we have. Our greed makes us want a lot of things we don't have. But there's no hurry. We've got all the time in the world. We've got our whole lifetimes to do this. So there is no hurry. Uh, what I talk to my sponsees about is a lot about uh, uh, being of service in every way they can in their families. Um, their wives need something, they tell them to get it for them. Um, they say, well, what about me? And I say, forget you. And uh, so that um, I used to wear tailor-made suits and my wife shopped at Penny's. Uh, and now she drives a Buick and I drive a little Mazda pickup. Uh, my bath towel used to be just as where I stepped out of the bathtub and hers was down the road. Now her bath towel is right by where she steps out of the bathtub and mine's down the road. It's just over and over. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly watching in my life. She's got the front part of the closet, I got the back part of the closet. And that's not in some, uh, that's not a put down of me. I'm not doing this in, if I'm doing this with a lousy attitude, forget it. I, might, I don't do it. If I, I won't do something if I can't do it with a reasonably good attitude. If I'm doing it in the poor me attitude, forget it. So, uh, it's a life of service in my family. When my son came back to join us, uh, 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 he was having trouble. He's learning disabled. Uh, the other, another son. We brought him home to live with us, and so he could go to college, and uh, we could be of help to him. And the, as soon as he got home, I took him down to the store and bought him the most expensive ski outfit that we could find. The best out ski outfit, not the most expensive, but just an exceptionally fine ski outfit, Gore-Tex Extreme Wear ski gear, because that's what he loved, and a hot, hot pair of skis and bindings and everything, so that I could be of service to him. Now I had some trouble with that. But that's my problem. Grow up, dummy. Now, I read this uh, ending to the other folks, but uh, you'll benefit from hearing it again because it's a very important um, statement. It's, uh, I'm writing a book called I Still Ain't Much Baby and I'm Still All I Got. It's a follow-up of a book I wrote 25 years ago, 30 years ago. 30 years ago, nearly. And um, I came to see it as uh, an, an ending, and in here I refer to the butterfly. And uh, those of you who know the butterfly story know that uh, as a butterfly crawls out of its cocoon, 
its last place of attachment is right over its wings. And it sits there struggling to free itself at that spot because that exercise is what the wings need to develop so the, wing, so the butterfly can walk out of a cocoon and fly, the most complicated physical thing it has to do. And that struggle against that suffering of attachment, if you, uh, a little kid then uh, used a pin to break that butterfly loose, and the butterfly walks out and walks away and can't fly. So each of us need all of the suffering that we get. I had to see my fear of being known. Now I know there was nothing to fear about being known. <coughs> Even more, there is a great joy in being known just as I am. Each word I write here lets you know me. We don't really get finished up with this being known until we can write out everything we ever did and nail it up in the courthouse door. I'm not there yet, but that's the direction I'm heading with the help of my friends. In the early days, I wanted a utopia like Shangri-La, but all utopias fail. There's a great hope and a great understanding hidden in that. We think we can figure out a community and even a world where all things are good. All the attempts that have been made at that have failed except one. The one exception is the utopia that you and I live in today, this life of yours and mine. That is the real utopia. How can that be? Simple. All our self-created utopias banish the possibility of suffering, struggle, evil, and pain. They fail to see that humans, like the butterfly, need the struggle against the opposing force within ourselves to grow strong so we can fly. Only on the day we finally see that we are the problem can we start to listen to the truth that sets us free. On that day we finally see that all our ideas of utopia leave out the most obvious necessity to grow and experience the dark side of ourselves so we can come into the light on our own. Just as the butterfly needs a struggle, we need our struggle to break down the dictatorship of our mind that keeps us living in a half-world that denies our part in the suffering we create and blames it on others. And in that half-world of the mind, there is some pleasure, some laughter, and some tears. But it robs us of the rest of our laughter, the full measure of our joys and sorrows that lets us finally experience life to the fullest. If you would mention ideas like these to the utopian, he or she would hoot you down as a fool, each utopian is so full of what they think is right that they can't see the good that is right under their noses. They haven't yet seen the necessity of the dark side of us and its place in defining the light. The dark side of us, or rather, the other world is all about pure light, but this place, our vacation from pure light, is about darkness and light. And that darkness and light is in each one of us, not just in the bad ones among us. We want to assume that we have the virtues and that those others out there are absent of the virtues. Finally, we find that life is about understanding for each of us that we are totally absent of any virtue. Once we face that, we are free at last. Then we can look to the source of all virtue for the daily transforming of ourselves that sets our feet on our own tailor-made-for-us free path home. I'll never forget a friend from New York who had the blessings of a couple of addictions. He was free of one, but not of the other for a while. He said to me before he died early, Jess, I would get off work and know where I should go, but my feet just wouldn't take me home. Now we can have feet that take us home every day. What is there outside us that we lack? Heaven is openly shown to our eyes. All our problems disappear. They were just ego delusions. Now we make the real connection every moment. Every moment we are home. There are no dark paths to lead us astray. No more obstructions. Our dancing and songs and laughter reflect our true union. 
This earth where we stand is the very word and thought of God. There is nothing other than that anymore. So, uh, God has been very kind to me. Uh, God has put a whole bunch of angels in my life. Right now, you are those angels. I appreciate all the gifts that you're bringing me. I appreciate the opportunity to express 30 years of fellowship work here today, the culmination of it. And this is a precious opportunity to have passed on my legacy to you. All the things that you have taught me and made possible for me. Without you, my life would be... Well, I got up this morning and thought, Hey, dummy, you're a guy who probably could have ended up homeless in the worst kind of way. And here you're putting a $500 suit on and a, and, a, and a $100 tie to go and talk to a bunch of people that love you. And you are the people and seeing God in you and you have brought God into my life because through each of you you serve the same function that Bob served for Bill. Bill and Bob had both prayed to God and they couldn't see God. But God created a special power in 1935 for his addicts because they were they died with in their addiction with prayers on their lips for thousands of years and he said the the words and the spiritual teachings that I've given aren't strong enough so I'll find a way to help all those addicts who die with prayers to me on their lips so I will create a magnifying glass so they can see me and what that magnifying glass is through which I see God is you. So when Bill talked to Bob, Bob was his magnifying glass that let him see God. And you are my magnifying glass that let me see God. So that, in the words of my catechism, I could know God, love Him, and serve Him in this world. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.